You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the OHBM Neurosalience podcast. Uh, in this podcast uh, today, in this episode, uh, this is our sixth podcast so far in our series. Uh, we're going to be talking to Jean Chen and Molly Bright. Uh, Jean is from University of Toronto. Molly is from Northwestern University. And they both, all their careers have been exploring and, and developing methods to extract physiologic information from fMRI time series, as well as with MRI as well. Um, in this podcast, we're going to talk about some of their work. We're going to have like a big picture on how it's relevant to fMRI, how it's relevant to clinical issues, how it could be used clinically. And maybe we'll, we'll dig in a little bit into the, uh, some of the details of some of their papers, some of the more interesting things that I've, I've found from reviewing what they've done. And the second part of this podcast actually is unique in the sense that, you know, they're both women scientists and they, they both really wanted to share uh, their experience of being women scientists and offering potential solutions to the unique challenges that women scientists have all the way from undergraduate up to their level of being PIs of, of labs. So really, really interesting conversation all the way through. So... I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. And so Jean Chen uh, received her, her master's in science uh, in 2004 in electrical engineering from the University of Calgary and her PhD in 2009 in biomedical engineering from McGill University. She completed her postdoctoral work uh, on multimodal MRI and brain aging at the Martino Center for Biomedical Imaging in Harvard Medical School in 2011 and then joined the University of Toronto Medical Biophysics Program as a faculty. She's a senior scientist at the Rotman Research Institute and a Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in Neuroimaging of Aging. And Molly Bright received her Bachelor's in Physics from MIT in 2006 and received her Doctor of Philosophy from University of Oxford in 2011 as part of the collaboration with the NIH. Her co-mentors were Peter Jezzard and Jeff Dunn. Uh, at the NIH. So Peter Jezzard's at Oxford and Jeff Dunn's at NIH. She completed her postdoctoral training at Cardiff uh, University Brain Research Imaging Center, uh, Kubrick it's called. Uh, then she moved to Nottingham as an independent Anne McLaren fellow to develop ultra high MRI, MR imaging methods uh, for studying cerebral physiology and neurological diseases at the Sir Peter Mansfield Imaging Center. And, and then finally in 2018, she returned home to America to lead the applied Neurovascular Imaging Lab at Northwestern University. And so, you know, both of you actually have a little bit of overlap with me. I did my postdoc at MGH, uh, so didn't overlap with Gene at the time. I, I did it back in the 90, late 90s. And, and Molly, I, I saw at the NIH, you know, when she was doing her graduate work, and then she worked with Kevin Murphy, who was, who was a person in my lab. So we have a lot of overlap or some overlap. Uh, so, and also physiologic MRI is sort of something that's sort of near and dear to my heart. Uh, I, I really get excited when I see good papers sort of pulling out a uh, new type of information out of, out of uh, functional MRI data or even MRI data. So just to introduce both of you, thanks, thanks both for doing this. And uh, which, whoever wants us to jump in first, how you got started and, and how you got interested in, in this particular aspect of, of functional MRI and MRI. So maybe Jean, uh, if you can go first. Okay. 
Yes, thank you, Peter, for inviting me. Uh, I'm, I'm very delighted to be here. So I did an engineering undergrad. So towards the end of my degree, I realized that I was really, really interested in signal processing. All the signal processing courses were my favorites. And afterwards, I actually got into industry. I did a year of work and in signal processing. That time I had two options. Uh, one of my options was to work on GPS you know, satellite signaling. And the other one was to work on biomedical research. And one of my longtime profs in undergrad encouraged me to go into MRI. So that's what I did. I thought that I would make a bigger difference in this field with my skills because I see there's at that point a general lack of signal processing development in medical imaging. And so in my master's, I did perfusion of stroke using MRI. And then that's when I got interested in the, in the physics aspects of MRI. So, and then I moved on to McGill to do a PhD in a, a sort of physics oriented lab and with Bruce Pike as my PI. And that's when, when I got my first exposure sort of formally to fMRI and everything just followed. The, the project was challenging, but it was very interesting. It taught me a lot. And so I, I took that with me to uh, the Martino Center where I work with David Salat on brain aging. And there I got my first exposure to resting state fMRI. And I realized that all the, you know, calibrated bold theory and the models that we use, and they, they had not translated into resting state. So I thought that was sort of like a gold mine of information and so much to be done. So that's where I took it off uh, when I became a PI. Okay. Yeah, without a doubt, it seems like fMRI is still catching up in terms of signal processing and, and applying all these methods uh, to fMRI data. Is, it's still, you know, there's so much kind of, you know, I hate to use the cliche, but low-hanging fruit in terms of that, re in, in that sense. But uh, so Molly, how do you get started and, and what made you interested in this fMRI yeah. uh, this aspect of fMRI? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Um, this is a lot of fun, I think. I, yeah, I was trained in physics and I had done a fair bit of optical imaging in various labs along the way. And when I moved into grad school, I, I think the only thing that kind of guided those directions was that I wanted to become a little bit more applied and a little bit more clinical and translational. And then this opportunity uh, at the NIH and these partnership programs that the NIH has with um, different universities, that, that suddenly became a new opportunity in front of me. And it, it just, it was a a really great chance to start to take some of the physics and technical training and and think about how they can be useful and and for me like building building a career where it's there are just so many possible applications where i think maybe if we go down that route we'll make a difference like i like having those types of long term benefits to things that i'm tinkering with in the short term so so that i gravitated towards imaging and and medical imaging for that reason i think and then once I started in MRI, I think there was just a lot of random chance involved. I don't think I'm the only one that gets a bit kind of knocked around by, oh, there's this paper. I know you try something and then it snowballs a bit. For me, I think a paper had come out where they used a breath hold in an experiment. And my mentor saw that and he suggested that maybe as I just get my my you know hands a little bit dirty with some scanning, I could, I could try sticking one of those in and see what we get. And I really liked it because I didn't have to, 
I didn't have to fight the data in order to see something. It was just so visible, such a robust effect. You could interpret it much more directly. And I, I really liked that. So yeah, I pursued it. And it's been influenced by some work in more neuroscience-driven labs, psychology-driven labs, physics-driven labs. But this world of more physiologic imaging kind of can connect to all of those pretty naturally. So it's been a fun kind of meandering journey so far. Yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, that's that's exactly, I mean, it's funny, I come from a physics background, but it seems like the people who are really pushing the field are the ones who come from, you know, more of the technical backgrounds who, you know, are trying to apply this sort of thing. And, and as far as, yeah, the, and, and also a lot of physicists sort of want to make their work, they want to make it feel more relevant. And so they get into MRI and then clinical and, and it's definitely, there's immediate uh, payoff. I follow as much as I can, both of your work and then in the work of others who are doing physiologic MRI. And I find it really fascinating. And it seems like there's so many gems of information and, and insight from your work that, you know, while a handful, you know, or larger group of people know, it doesn't really translate to the world of cognitive neuroscience. I mean, you have cognitive neuroscientists who are super sophisticated in the processing, but then they don't realize, oh, you know, this bold signal is larger because there's, you know, large veins in this voxel and, and it doesn't have much to do with neural activity. And, and not, not a lot of people, I think, well, there's a lot, I mean, that's, that said, there's always exceptions. I mean, there's many great neuroscientists who understand this, but so what are your thoughts on that? Either of you, as far as, do you feel frustrated or do you feel like there's, you know, there's some inroads here and there or in, in what sense is there? So, um, yeah, so I, I think about this a fair bit. Uh, I, I think that one issue that we may have is that the people working on the physiological side, trying to just wrap our heads around what these signals are telling us and what they really mean and how that all breaks down when your assumptions don't hold. And we can often end up writing papers that could be interpreted as saying bold fMRI doesn't work. It's not a fit tool for the purpose you want it to fit, right? Um, you can't study neural activity with fMRI because it's it's all about the plumbing. And I think what we need to be careful is, I, I don't think that the richness of information on the physiological side means you can't use it to study neural activity. It just means you have to be a little bit more conscious and creative and thorough with what you collect and how you analyze it and what you ultimately interpret. But because we often have people working in one silo or another, I think sometimes our work can seem like, you know, it's a bit of a downer. It's like, oh, well, you can't use this method for what you want. And I don't think that's actually the core message that, you know, the physiological images are really internalizing ourselves. I think we just see it as added richness to the data that you should be considering, but we can absolutely like try to keep developing this tool for cognitive neuroscience as well. So I'm trying to now write papers that aren't just about identifying problems, but also about, well, what can you do with what we now know? And that's that's a much harder set of papers to write. It's a harder research direction to go in, but I'm optimistic. I think more and more people I meet from sort of the other side of the aisle are engaged with this side of the data. 
Yeah, that's why I really like your work, Molly, because、uh, you try to make the measurements more practical. I kind of come from the other. I try to come from the other perspective, and I feel the frustration of the neuroscientists as they want to try to apply our findings, but it's just too hard. You know, you have to get three extra measures which you don't have time for, or you have to acquire some additional、um, instruments, and then the the resulting measurement is not as Repeatable, it's not as sensitive, and so then where do they land with that? So, so I can feel that because the, these are my colleagues that I work with regularly. So, for example, with this resting state vascular reactivity sort of approach, I mean, I find that to have much more. Uptake because it's easy. You get something for nothing, and so this is something that I think this type of technique is what I think we as physicists, or as the technical crowd, we need to think more about developing for there to be uptake. Of course, it's taken a long time for anything to penetrate、um, into the cognitive neuroscience world, but I think it's not because they don't want to. Uh, transition, or they don't want to hear about all the caveats. It's just that in the end, what can they do? I think a lot of us are. I agree with Molly. Also,、um, we're we're embracing this silo thinking. I'm a technical person, so I only want to understand. I don't think about how to translate. I think there's a big gap there, and there's lots of opportunities for those who are in that position to translate these techniques. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that I tr I try to yeah when I when I talk to the neuroscientists, you know, the, you can tailor questions that sort of don't really depend on you know it, some of the variability that that you see, and so you can kind of look beyond it. But but it's funny. I, I yeah, and, and like both of you said, there's 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 opportunities. I think for and we'll we'll get into this. I mean, to to sort of normalize the signal a little bit better, so that you can actually get more quantitative information. But let me ask you. Let me start out with a general question. So, just to maybe both of you off the top of your heads.、Uh, so, as far as you know, we can extract neural information. So, off the top of your heads, what 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 other physiologic information can be extracted from the fMRI time series? Just、uh, you know, with any manipulation you can do, what do you think? What do you think can be extracted? And then, what maybe to go into that? What can be? What is useful? What's potentially useful clinically? Wow. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty loaded question. Maybe I I can I can start on this one. Yeah, so I spent my whole PhD trying to extract this type of information.、Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oxygen metabolism. That's always a big one,、uh, the holy grail for some time. And of course, reactivity is another one of my passions, as is Molly's. So vascular reactivity, especially because of the recent advent of. This huge interest in the vascular hypothesis for Alzheimer's. There's more and more attention, sort of, on the vascular side of things,、uh, and then really think that can take off. And I think that's important. And that's just there. That that information has been sitting there, irrespective of whether we use a breath hold. That information is there, not only in the amplitude of the signal, but also in the in the timing of the signal. Right. So there are multiple dimensions that we can exploit. And as to what can be useful clinically, I think,、um, well, while trans translation takes time, I think in in Toronto, for example, we have a fairly strong group at Toronto Western that translates vascular reactivity measurements into the clinic、uh, in looking at、uh, patients with vascular pathologies. And so I think that's a good model, perhaps for others to adopt when possible, because 
it's um, it's all about the feasibility of the technique and also the commitment of the researcher, the clinical researchers and the clinicians. Yeah, so so the lowest hanging fruits will probably, in my mind, be vascular reactivity. Although uh, we are working actively still on trying to extract the oxidative metabolism and other things related to the vasculature, but that will take a little bit more time. Yeah, I. Thank you said it very well, Jean. Um, and yes, personally, I, I'm also rooting for vascular reactivity as maybe the most accessible clinical uh, marker for translation. I think that it takes very, very brave and special people to kind of bridge this gap of, of the developmental side of the method and really being willing to try to scale these methods up for a, a proper clinical trial. Uh, and that's starting to happen with this vascular reactivity mapping trying to help with diagnosis and planning for surgical interventions. And so that is just starting now. And, and so I think in the next 10 years, it's going to maybe be something that you could order, you know, for a patient and, and get a CBR scan done. And so that's, that's I think, our, our best hope at the moment in terms of real clinical take up of these methods. So with regard to um, vascular reactivity, just really quickly, just um, as far as yeah. clinically, is it so, I mean, obviously it's, it's maybe uh, relevant to vessel stiffness or uh, just general vascular pat patency as far as, you know, mm -hmm. likelihood for stroke. I mean, what, what do you think that, what patients would be, would be, you know, would you run a test for vascular activity with? Yeah, right now I think um, it's perhaps most useful in patients where you think that we're approaching this risk of maxing out the dilatory capacity of vessels. So that can happen for a, a range of reasons, but often if, if you start to become more at risk for an ischemic stroke, your vessels are dilating to try to compensate for some decrease in blood supply. And at some point they can't dilate any further. And that's when real damage starts to accrue. So, so using vascular reactivity scans to, to track and try to estimate where are you in that process of, I can totally compensate for little fluctuations in my blood supply to I can't, I'm right at the threshold, any fluctuations might cause real damage to my tissue. And so CVR scans can help you try to estimate where you are and that's gonna vary around the brain and it'll vary with an intervention. So, so that's maybe where I'll see it happen first, but I think you, you mentioned, Jean mentioned the vascular uh, framework for thinking about different dementias and, and that is a slightly different vascular impairment here, um, but CVR could also play a role. I don't think we have a handle on exactly what that looks like yet, but that will be another avenue. Okay. And also, uh, you know, just, it just brought to mind, you know, another, other work. I mean, I think that both of you looked at this, just looking at the, not only the vascular reactivity with, with, uh, you know, physiologic stresses, but also the leg or the, the relative delay. Uh, it seems that, and I've seen work, you know, also one of you, uh, you know, collaborated with uh, Blaise Frederick, as far as, you know, you know, using uh, a photodiode and, or else looking at the relative delay with the global fluctuations and, you know, having data that compares really well with like gadolinium injections and things like that, that actually look at areas of compromised flow uh, nicely just by slow arrival time. So, so yeah, I mean, okay. All right. Well, good. Um, so do you, what do you think uh, would be useful in terms of this information? Um, you know, definitely for quantitative fMRI, uh, it's nice to have, you know, these, these M maps, as they're called, sort of maps of, of, of potential bold. Um, how else do you think this could be useful to, I mean, I know, Mala, you had a recent paper on doing these breathing uh, 
manipulations at the, at the beginning of every fMRI scan. So how do you think it could be useful to fMRI data and interpretation? It depends what lens you wanna look at your data with. So, so yes, yeah, so the paper you're referring to uh, just, just got out on BioArchive and it's something I've kind of thought might make sense for a while. And then I needed a clever postdoc to actually figure out if it makes sense and what it looks like, um, but she's just done that. So Rachel Stickland just put a paper out on BioArchive and, and we're proposing this, this small little, very practical thing that pretty much anyone could do with an fMRI scan where you just change your breathing a little bit in the beginning to access some of these vascular measures we're talking about. So that's the dilatory capability of the vessels and also this lag, this latency of the hemodynamic response. So you get information about the health of the vasculature, which if you're scanning for any reason, if you're scanning somebody who's had a stroke or has some sort of, um, perhaps uh, dementia or, or so many different pathologies have a vascular element. So now you're able to characterize that. But if you look at the lens of the rest of the data set, your typical resting state fMRI scan, we're still hypothesizing, but I think that there's a lot that that information can tell you. So you could potentially use the dilatory response, this CVR measure or this M-map to try to normalize the, um, the bold fluctuations you see in your normal fMRI data to account for some of that physiological variability throughout the brain. Um, and then also this lag measure that we get, if you want to look at relationships between two signals in disparate regions of the brain, if there are differences in just the transit times and the dynamics of blood flow in those regions, you wanna account for that if you actually wanna look for true relationships in maybe neural processes. Um, so what we're hoping to do is kind of make this hybrid approach where you can combine the information. You have this richer, more complementary data set that lets you kind of view both sides um, with uh, a bit more context. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that, I mean, there's so many, yeah, there's so many uh, directions to go with, with this. Uh, so my ultimate goal, one of my goals, and I, always, and I say it very boldly in my, in my lab reviews, is that I think that we can remove all non-neural physiologic uh, noise. Uh, maybe not thermal, maybe thermal a little bit, but uh, I mean, there's some new techniques coming up. But I think that we can get rid of all this phys, uh, physiologic noise if we, if we just model it well enough. And... Um, but then, then Molly, you had an interesting paper that sort of suggests, you know, just using modeling and regressing might overfit and and uh, uh, maybe uh, isn't the best approach. Um, and so you might want to maybe talk about that briefly. <laughs> sure. Yeah. This is this is a fraught scenario. Um, I think my my first caveat here is I am not a statistician, and I thoroughly recommend that anybody who's working in these areas befriend a statistician who understands neuroimaging data because we often use stats a little bit loosely um, to, to, to interpret and, and make conclusions out of what we see. And as I've learned that, that's not as straightforward as I initially thought. Um, so find a friendly statistician and get them on board and learn from them. Um, but so, so the paper I think you're referring to, I was showing that, you know, I agree that I really like to have a forward model of all of these sources of signal variance. So we record things about a person. We try to estimate their physiology from a nasal cannula, from a pulse ox, from a belt around their diaphragm, from optical recordings, whatever we can get. 
And then we try to model what those signals look like in a bold fMRI time series. And we make a big old general linear model and we can regress out any associated variance. Um, and, and then we have cleaned data. And this is how I prefer to operate, but there are serious limitations to this. Um, and some things I really suspect, it's just a matter of time, we'll get more and more clever and we'll figure it out. And some things I'm a little bit uncertain about, like, are we actually going to be able to do this? Um, so one thing that's come up is that um, like this model of how something influences the bold signal, you know, we're talking about how vascular physiology differs throughout the brain and person to person. So modeling what you expect to see from a given noise source might be cohort specific, person specific, brain region specific, voxel specific. And so maintaining a forward model of what you, you predict to see gets increasingly more difficult, especially when we're bringing in pathology. Um, so people are doing this, they're working very hard to do this. Sometimes you need big data and then you can learn from that to bring it back down to an individual subject. Um, so I think it's in the realm of possibility, um, but it needs a lot more work, yeah. Yeah, and it seems like things vary on a voxel-wise basis too. It's like you, know, you can't just have one regressor and, and, and the shape varies and all kinds of things vary uh, as far as that's concerned. Um, you know, it just seems that if you, it, right, if you can model it completely on a voxel-wise, come up with some way of getting all that information quickly and efficiently on a voxel-wise basis, because it varies from subject to subject as well. And, and, it, it, it can uh, and, and we're ignoring interactions, which is maybe my favorite thing to think about, um, which is none of these processes happen in isolation. Physiology is ridiculously correlated with itself. So yeah. anything you measure from one, one physiological source, be it neural, vascular, um, it's, it's probably related to every other thing you measure. So fully differentiating is, is uh, non-trivial. <laughs> Yeah, and, and before I get into some, some questions to Gene, I just want to mention this one other paper. I figure since we're talking about that, this one other paper that seems to suggest, I remember one time, a long time ago, Rasmus Byrne, who was in my group, and I had this paper that, you know, we tried to look at resting state, the uh, breathing response function. Uh, and, and we found that that, uh, that bellows sort of response, the, the spatial map looked a lot like the default mode network. And and that seems, you know, you've taken this much further with looking at, it seems that, and it's really a weird question. Um, uh, it seems that there's, there's overlap between the, the, you know, there's respiratory signals as you get in the time series and different networks in the brain. It seems like each network has their own sort of vascular network that sort of corresponds to, to a neural network. And so, you know, if you're looking at if you're looking at these networks, if you try to regress all the respiration, you might get rid of, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater in some sense. Um, yeah. yeah. And this, I mean, so the, I think the paper you're referring to is it's my favorite one to think about. And it's the one I really don't know how to follow up. So please, anyone listening, if you have great ideas, please get in touch. Cause I think it's, it's a really just neat, neat puzzle to work out of. So what, what we did is we, we had in one experiment, we had some of these vascular stimuli and then we had your typical neural stimuli as well. And we averaged a lot of data together from different people in different sessions. And we just looked for structures. And what we saw were say two networks, both of them kind of look like the default mode network, but one of them looks like our, when you look at the time series of these networks, one looks like a working memory task and the other one with very similar spatial features looks a lot like our vascular stimulus. Yeah. And we saw that for a visual system and we saw that for um, the sort of task positive network blobs. So 
So the, the working hypothesis that we were playing with, which we can't prove with fMRI or with the data at hand, but the hypothesis is that, you know, it's not unreasonable to think that our vasculature and our physiology has developed in tandem with all of our neural systems. So there might be some very network specific physiological processes. So yeah, teasing apart these systems, maybe that actually isn't what we should be aiming to do. We just need to make sure we're characterizing sort of both processes and both systems in order to interpret something in a given network. Um, but yes, I think we're gonna need multimodal imaging. We're gonna need um, many more clever people coming to this question. So if this intrigues you, please get in touch. Cause I, I, uh, I think it's a really, it's a neat thing to, to think about. Yeah, yeah, no, without a doubt. I think, it, I mean, it's like anything in science the story gets a little bit more complicated yeah, there's more questions that arise as you dig in and you're like, oh, this isn't as simple as we thought. So Gene, so speaking of multimodal, uh, so I saw in your lab webpage that you work with EEG and fMRI. So, yeah. so how do you apply that as far as uh, with what you're working with? Well, yeah, so I only got into EEG quite recently. Um, and this is, again, a suggestion to, to all those out there. If you think you're an MRI person, don't, <laughs> because you just never know. Because as I got deeper and deeper interesting state after my, we were just um, busy trying to tease apart the supposedly neural and the non-neural components of the signal. And I got the sense that a lot of the signal actually in interesting state, maybe the majority of the signal may not be neural. And so that's when I felt it was absolutely necessary to bring something else. Of course, EEG is not perfect. It's not the silver bullet. It has its own challenges but it gives a different perspective. And so it's, it's, it's necessary. And uh, people say that bringing multimodal, uh, multimodalities uh, into your work doesn't only give you the benefits of both, it also gives you the challenges of both. Um, but I think this is a direction that I've enjoyed uh, taking. For example, if we were looking at the physiological processes, for example, Rasmus's RVP, so respiratory variability measure, we assume that is not neural, but is that true? So I think one layer of this challenge is that we don't know the interactions between neuronal processes and the physiological processes. And I felt like I was just uh, starting in this, and there are, there are people in the, in the field, in, not particularly in our field of research, that have probably been looking at this question for, for decades. And I think this is a golden opportunity to kind of reach out to those experts who may not be in MRI, just to get a better sense, because we, we don't want to be overly naive in thinking. I, mean, I was personally, I think I was naive in thinking that we, we need to throw out the physiological processes because of the, the, the literature that I've followed. Um, but this EEG experiment, um, which just came out in your image this year, uh, is changing my mind. It makes me realize just how much I don't know. And so on the one hand, these physiological processes might have be involved in a feedback loop with neuroactivity at both low level and high level, um, and they interact with each other. So it is a messy problem trying to really get down to the neural because then at this point, I thought I, I was onto something, but then when I get there, I realize it is not what I thought it was. So, yeah, I mean, both of you, you know, as you're talking, it, it brings to mind, um, you know, the, uh, this work by, I think it's Greg Moore, um, 
he was at MIT. He was at MIT. I, I'm not sure. He and yeah, he actually had this neuro, this hemoneuro hypothesis, where the the hemodynamics actually triggered neural activity. Which, and and I think he's he pursued it, but I think that everyone hated it. And uh, <laughs> it's an amazing paper, though. It, yeah, it's, it's a really cool paper. paper. It's it's just saying the vasculature passes the Turing test. So, so just because it's not what you think is driving some of the aspects of function and cognition doesn't mean it, it, it isn't a powerful system that maybe could have the uh, uh, impact that we don't yet understand. So it's a really great read. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that there's still work to be done with that. I, I don't know if he's still doing specifically that work, but it was beautiful. It was a beautiful paper. Um, so also, uh, Jane, I, and, and speaking of uh, beautiful papers, I, I was just looking at... Um, you know, it, it actually, I, I learned something I, that, you know, in your paper characterizing the, the transit time um, uh, of blood throughout the entire brain using, I think, the, the myconectome uh, yeah. data set. That was really cool. And it's like something like seven seconds and you characterize it from, you know, all the way from the jugulars all the way down to, uh, uh, or not the jugulars, but the arteries all the way yeah. through. Yeah, through the sagittal sinuses. Yeah, so I was brought onto this work kind of late. Um, the idea was really uh, from Yunjie and uh, Blaise. And um, so there, as it turns out, there there was this reproducible uh, anti-correlation between an artery and a vein. So in this case, it's a major artery, in the internal product and a major vein. And we know their orientations. And so um, it was highly reproducible. It, it came out that the the lag between them was about seven seconds. And so the first implication was that you might be able to use this property to to map transit delay uh, elsewhere in the brain. So, um, so at that point, the question to me was, uh, so from the the perspective of MR physics, how does that happen? So we we have simulated this phenomenon actually um, from first principles, you know, susceptibility and uh, the, the, the equations laid out by uh, o, uh, Ogawa and NL in 1993, really seminal paper. And we find that indeed, based on susceptibility effects alone, there is always gonna be an anti-correlation between arteries and veins, especially in resting state um, when you're looking at correlations. Perhaps the arterial signal itself is very small, but if you're looking at correlations, it might still be very robust and reproducible. But we also uh, further this investigation into other vessels in the brain, um, so where susceptibility can still be modeled, but there is this com more complex interplay between uh, vessel orientation and occupancy in the voxel. So uh, this work um, I'm hoping we'll present at the OHBM this year. I mean, we've, we've found something very interesting, but I think this is also not something very hard to do. I think all physicists can do this, um, but it's just, you know, something that's sitting there and no one has really looked at before, uh, Blaze and his lab. Yeah, actually, to be honest, it, it kind of, you know, it's funny. I, 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 it kind of blew my mind when I read, because <laughs> I, I, I always assumed, you know, even, you know, I, you know, I studied those papers a, a lot and I never worked it through that the arterial susceptibility is is actually different from tissue, and and so it can give a an, a bold effect uh, the opposite sign. And there's so much interesting information that can just be obtained from that in itself. Uh, and it changes sign rate around eighty six percent oxygenation. That's 
that's really, really interesting. Um, so. <laughs> but in task-based experiments, this, this could also apply because the arterial signal is also driven by T2 and T1. So these things become drastically longer. Um, sorry, what T1 becomes a lot longer at high field and T2 a lot shorter. So uh, the difference between arterial T2 and tissue T2 also becomes larger at high field. So I expect, although I've never worked with high field, this effect might be enhanced. That's very cool. That's very, I'm definitely going to think about that and for my own lab's work and uh, potentially. Um, I mean, there's so many, you know, so many interesting. I can talk for hours, but um, uh, so why don't it's just so that we have enough time to talk about our other topic? But uh, what do you think? So just to just to conclude this this part. So what do you think the long-term prospects are for for this research? Um, you know, I'm always trying to you know even talk to the people at the NIH who, you know, give funding or whatever, just to say, hey, this is really important research. Uh, I think, I personally think that the, the first clinical applications of fMRI will be things like this, rather than uh, coming up with neuropsychiatric biomarkers or whatever um, that are, you know, I think it's, and so what do you think? Uh, what do you think are the, you know, you already hinted at the biomarkers that might be used as far as uh, vascular reactivity. And um, uh, what do you, what information do you think is remaining uh, maybe to be extracted? And what do you think the long-term prospects like in the next 10 years are for this research and maybe the applications? Um, yeah, so one thing that I guess we haven't touched on very much so far is the idea of looking at autoregulation uh, in some of these same signals. So cerebrovascular reactivity is typically the response induced by something like carbon dioxide. Um, and that is going, going to be different local physiologic mechanisms to your autoregulation response, which is so critical at maintaining blood pressure and supply uh, to your brain throughout your daily activities. So it is getting at a different process. And I think from a clinical point of view, the idea of measuring autoregulation with some of these techniques would be a huge leap forward. Um, it's tricky. Again, we don't, you know, you to do a blood pressure challenge in the scanner. Um, when I was in Cardiff, we tried to do this. We built what we fondly refer to as a leg coffin. You know, it's a big wooden box that you put your lower part of your body into, and there's a vacuum cleaner in the control room connected, and and you basically uh, just reduce the pressure in the box and blood pools in the legs, and you can do some of these. Um, these types of experiments, trying to understand how signals in the brain related to physiology change with blood pressure. Can um, you squeeze the box too? Can you? Can you? Um, yeah, there are there are anti shock trousers which actually cause positive pressure. We didn't try those. Um, it's hard, right? We sucked people into a box, so their head moved several inches out of the head coil. And when you're doing some of these um, very sensitive uh, scans, that type of movement it, it's just very destructive. So um, we had to we had to kind of make this work, but. So maybe not that experiment, but ways of accessing blood pressure recordings in the scanner. Um, there are some beat to beat recordings we could get to maybe pair those recordings with fMRI-like fMRI acquisitions to try to get information that right now we only have Doppler readings. And then we could really look at autoregulation and map these things. Um, and that'll, that'll play a huge clinical role if we can really tack that, I think. Yeah, I often thought that just simply you know, having continuous measures of, of blood pressure uh, and, and in which you can, you know, I mean, just like along like, you know, both of you have, uh, you know, maybe Molly does more breathing 
uh, tasks. And, and, and Gene maybe looks at resting state variations in end tidal CO2. But I mean, the same thing in breath, blood pressure, you could look at maybe blood pressure tasks, or maybe I don't even know how much blood pressure varies over time and continuously measuring it, just using that signal to. Yeah. yeah it's always a trade-off, right? It's something that's easier to acquire often has a risk of you don't have enough variation to really powerfully see the effect. So I think in the beginning, it's helpful to, to modulate things until you can pin down models and you know what you're looking for. Um, simple things like a thigh cuff relief are, a release are being used. And that's a way to have this big um, pressure change um, that's very transient. Uh, so it's, it's, there are things that we can do, yeah. but yes, having continuous recording that's MRI safe and really is getting at a blood pressure recording. I think that's, we're not quite there yet, but there are, there are things in progress. Okay. So Gene, what do you think in 10 years? What do you think? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Technically or clinically? Um, um, maybe a little bit of both. Maybe a little bit right. of both. Okay, so um, in terms of clinical, maybe this is closer to where we are right now. Um, I, I've kind of stuck to my guns and said we don't want to introduce any um, breathing challenges, uh, although they're not, you know, outright breath holds or, or respirac sessions, but, but I mean, you, you need some sort of variation to get a robust measurement. So that is has been a real signal processing challenge. And, um, but, but I see the enthusiasm in the users and they want to use this technique. So, so I think um, this is something that we need to work on. We need to push into the clinical realm in the next 10 years for sure. Um, but, but you mentioned blood flow, uh, blood pressure. So blood pressure is, is a uh, Pandora's box, I find. It, it has so many implications. Uh, we know older, Adults tend to have higher blood pressure and higher vascular stiffness, also linked to uh, risks for various diseases, including um, Alzheimer's disease, other forms of dementia, diabetes, um, you name it. So this has a broad implication to a large portion of the population. But then it has other physiological feedback mechanisms. So uh, I'm reading into this and this has become like a new obsession. Also vasal motion is another thing that's been really puzzling and we're just trying to uh, sink our teeth into it. And the more we know, the more we, know we don't know. Um, so with that, I'm kind of hoping that vasal motion can be a clinical, clinically useful measurement wherever it comes from. It's there. I think we try to capture it. It's very evasive, but we try to capture it. And, and I think it, it, it's also very elegant in the sense that it is in the data. It can be tracked by its frequency and so on. Yeah. Yeah, you actually broke down. So in one of your papers, you actually, I'm sorry to go back into the weeds, but uh, you have another yeah. paper that breaks down the, the, the main modes of the resting state. And one of them you, you, you identify as vasomotion. I thought that was really interesting because it's a big problem in interpreting, you know, what is vasomotion, what's, what's not. I mean, everyone thought that the frequencies kind of overlap, but you were able to separate them. Uh, in that regard. Well, as we thought we were, I think is never the end of the battle, um, but it was one approach, uh, which we, we thought we did our best because I was, I was very um, determined to, to tease out the basal motion. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know that we have a full understanding of it. Uh, so I know the Kleinfeld lab has been actively working on this, showing that it's got um, implications neuronally of the gamma activity. Um, whereas in other literature, it's, it's regarded as mostly a systemic oscillation. And when you look up the definition of vasomotion, there's confusion with 
basal motion versus the Mayer wave. So um, this is again, so we have a paper that's coming out in human brain mapping soon, uh, in which we sort of investigate the presence of this wave in the brain uh, by using the signal from the cerebral spinal fluid. Um, so, so it's sort of a first step, first try, but I think that's something that's also we're going to pursue. Um, so coming back to your question about the 10-year sort of plan or where I, I, I foresee the field in 10 years, I hope that from the technical side, uh, we achieve sort of a more um, unification of calibrated fMI between task and resting state. This is what we're also working on right now. Uh, I believe coming from a background of gas calibration and uh, breathing challenges, I actually have become really fond of the gas-free approach. Not only because, uh, I mean, it's, it's more math and I like that, but also I recall when I was a postdoc at the Martino Center all those years ago, um, I had this chat with uh, Bruce Rosen who, who said uh, that I should, you know, despite the, the popularity of resting state, um, get down to the basics. I mean, read uh, your paper <laughs> from 1995, read uh, Jared Boxman's papers. And that's what I did. I was in the reading room reading those papers and I thought this is very cool. And that's when I got into um, sort of quantitative bold, more quantitative bold. I think we all need more quantitativeness in these measurements. Otherwise, I mean, it, it's in 10 years, we'll still be as frustrated as we are now. Yeah. So uh, from the physics perspective, I hope that we're going to achieve some sort of calibration that applies to both task and resting state to get more information from that and uh, about the vasculature. And to do that, I think we need to model the signal. So this is, yep. you know, you did this so many years ago. I mean, I don't mean to imply that you're old, but uh, <laughs> but it's just something no. that... <laughs> Yeah. With. And we still haven't seen broad um, sort of application of this this type of approach. Frankly, I I really love it, and we're getting into it now. And I think uh, using this type of approach, we have more computational demands. I know that Boxman simulations take a long time, but it doesn't have to anymore because we have machine learning, we have uh, clusters, and so we can model. Uh, a lot more things than we could before. Yeah. And by doing that, we can also extract a lot more parameters, things that we don't usually get access to. So quantitative parameters, I think this, I hope to see in 10 years. That's a great answer. And and I think you're right. I think, uh, yeah, we haven't even mentioned machine learning uh, sort of being more efficient and pulling all this out. I'm trying to talk to people along those lines too, in terms of denoising and whatever, but but still pulling out the physiologic information. So just to, uh, we're going a little long with it. If you don't mind, we'll go, we'll go a little bit long just to make sure we have enough time to talk uh, about the other part of this, but maybe in the context uh, uh, of, of women in science. So what has been your experience uh, going from uh, uh, doing, you know, your undergraduate work all the way to being now starting your labs uh, as, a, as women in, in, in sciences. Where, where have you seen uh, blocks or frustrations and, and you know, are there any potential solutions to that? So um, I'm kind of, I'm curious. So <laughs> I, I guess 
I mean, a cheerful way to start this is probably we, Molly and I were amongst a group of female PIs that gathered uh, at one of the, the meetings that was held in Baltimore. Um, and then we just naturally clustered and we started to chat about our experiences. And it was, it was relaxing and um, supportive uh, environment. I think personally for me, coming out of a lab being a student, uh, becoming a PI um, definitely has been has exposed me to things that I just never learned in grad school. Uh, things like how to navigate the department, uh, all the services that we have to do, expectations from students, expectations from colleagues, and uh, frankly, you know, drawing a line in terms of the boundaries in our responsibilities, especially now during COVID, where uh, I read this uh, article recently, basically summarizing how women um, typically have more uh, caregiving responsibilities and they have more service and teaching responsibilities at the university. So these are things that are not just specific to us, but also to others. And so basically how to navigate that, I think is something very new and I, I could feel that, that sort of supportive environment that we had, uh, Molly and I were at this dinner, I wish others had it too, so they could share their experiences and, and support each other. Maybe there are no solutions immediately to some of these issues, but at least it really helps to know that uh, you're not alone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think when Jean and I have talked about this previously, um, thinking about the benefits of mentoring. And so, so this was an example that she's talking about of, I guess, like near peer mentoring of people who are kind of in the trenches at the same point and with the mm -hmm. same types of experiences that we're going through simultaneously. Um, and then it, it's also very helpful to have more senior colleagues as mentors. And until we have excellent diversity at all career levels, you have to make an extra effort to find and connect with um, diversity in, in senior colleagues as mentors. So, I mean, I think, I think I've been very fortunate. I have had phenomenal mentors, although predominantly men um, throughout my career. And I'm thinking about when that, that may have really pushed me to behave in a way that that's different because they brought a different perspective. So two little examples. Um, when I was going for a fellowship position, I wanted to have a conversation about salary and I was uncomfortable. Um, I didn't know if I should or how I would do that and what it would come across like. And I had male mentors and friends uh, talk me through it and support me in doing that. And I agonized over the email, but, but I did it because I felt I had enough support that I was confident. And when I was applying for tenure track positions, um, I didn't necessarily meet all the essential criteria and the job description. And I think there's evidence that that many times women in our field or in our career type um, don't go up for jobs if you don't tick all the boxes in advance. Um, and, and I had male mentors and friends and colleagues say, no, just apply and encourage me and help me address these gaps. And I get the job, right? So it's, it's I've, I've identified that I do fall into some of these stereotypes that are out there where maybe as a woman or maybe just as me, I, I really benefit from having some mentors who view things very differently to help me with some of these key moments in career progression. But I think what, what Jean and I have talked about is just as you need those types of mentors, you also need mentors 
who are very similar and have very similar experiences and challenges and environmental factors. Um, and, and you want that diversity of, of guidance and advice and support. And so some I can find naturally and some right now, just because we're, we're improving, but we're not as diverse as we should be at all levels, we need to maybe make extra effort to connect senior faculty, junior faculty, postdocs all the way down um, to make sure that all of these viewpoints are kind of contributing to, to some of the professional development challenges we have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like, yeah, you, you spoke to the idea of having mentors. Uh, and, and I think you're right. I think that somehow uh, mentors that sort of, and sort of can really understand how you're thinking and, and anticipate your perspective and having female ment mentors in that regard is, is, yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, you know, if, uh, and I'd like to think my advice that I give to female and male postdocs is the same, but maybe, maybe it shouldn't be the same. Maybe it should try to anticipate, you know, the, what's going through the mind of a female postdocs and, and sort of like in terms of, you know, what, what they should ask for or not. I mean, it's similar, I think, but that, but you're right. I mean, I think that it, it, there is probably advice that would be better given <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, for female mentors potentially. So, and yeah, hopefully it's changing too. Hopefully, you know, I look at this problem as sort of a systemic problem. That's, uh, you know, we can only try to get rid of bias and, and foster, you know, practical things like, uh, you know, or even transparency. And I was talking to Danny Bassett a couple of weeks ago, being aware of how many, what is the teaching load of females versus males? What is the childcare sort of issues and why can't we sort of help that? Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I guess uh, in regards to OHBM, I know there is a mentorship program for postdocs, um, but maybe this could be extended into the, the group of uh, junior PIs. I'm not saying just women PIs, but junior PIs in general. Um, but uh, I also want to stress that some of the, con the biases that uh, we may experience or others may experience, they may not be conscious. They're unconscious biases. And that's very much a part of our nature and that's part of the world. And um, I think when I, I, I also really appreciate my, my mentors. All of my mentors have been great. Um, but when I sometimes bring problems to my male mentors and then they will say, I've never had this problem. I don't know. Right. <laughs> this might just be you. Yeah. And so it's an incredibly lonely feeling. And I think it doesn't have to be. Uh, that's sort of uh, whether we organize ourselves locally or at the organizational level uh, or internationally, I mean, um, seeking out mentors or having a mentorship structure or framework for this type of support, I think would help to get a lot, a lot more women uh, adapted in academia because I feel my challenges are not doing the work, but doing the other things that are not related to my training, not related to my science. And that can be understated a lot. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, I see your point. And it, it seems hopefully, I mean, it looks like you, you're spontaneously organizing to, to have this group, but I think you know, having something more formal in, in at least, I mean, in the context of OHBM, we could try to, to, to you know, obviously more formalize that. Um, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's always interesting when I'm on committees at OHBM, you know, you want to, you know, there's, there's a couple pools of people, you know, one who just doesn't want to care or even to look at 
the, you know, the number of females being invited to talks or whatever. And there's another one that wants to maintain a quota. Uh, and, and then, you know, there's, and, and there's this, always this tension in that regard, which is, which is too bad. I mean, you know, you, you definitely want to, to build up more of a base of, of, uh, uh, and have, uh, equal representation of, of female and male scientists. And, um, but I think until then we have to really be mindful of, of the disparity of, of you know, thing, even things like who gives talks or, or, or that sort of thing where it's even less of a, you know, there it's sort of not like the subconscious bias. I was actually amazed with um, in references, uh, you know, that I don't even pay attention to who's an author or not typically. I mean, I just look at the paper and I'm like, oh, okay. But really, I mean, it's a, a, a large bias in, in male over female for references. And so a solution to that, and like you were all saying, like both of you are saying, is just making things transparent and, and then having clear organizations of, of females of, that could foster this mentorship, like you said, all the way down, all the way from, uh, the highest PI down to the, the student um, and, and that really address the needs of, of females uh, uh, and, and try to solve some of the, the issues in that regard. So, yeah. yeah. So if, I mean, personally, I, I want to contribute to this if I can in any way, um, you know, through the OHBM, for example, uh, please let me know. And if anyone who's uh, listening to this podcast, who's in this sort of situation, who, who would like to reach out for mentorship, I mean, I just want to pass it forward. Um, I, I want to offer what I have. Yeah, okay. And I, I, think, I think to everybody who's in a trainee position, um, something that I, I always experienced was super imposter syndrome. And I still have it, right? And I think a lot of people <laughs> have it. Um, yeah. But but you, you do belong in the room, you do belong speaking at the podium and you do belong being nominated for things or going up for things or applying for things. And, it, and sometimes you, you feel like you need an extra push. And so I would encourage, you know, particularly with, for, for all women in science, nominate each other, support each other at going up for these things, introduce colleagues, build the networks. Um, because I, I think that there is a lingering feeling of uncertainty as to whether or not we're really supposed to be in the room for certain conversations and, and we are, and it's definitely improving, but we can always do more. So um, yeah, I look forward to getting involved with, with all of these potential initiatives that might spring from this in the future. Yeah, that's, I mean, you mentioned imposter syndrome. That's, it's so interesting. My, my wife is actually in the field of cardiology and she was, she was just hosting a meeting about this, uh, talking about, um, imposter syndrome. Uh, and, and I think, right. I mean, all people have it, but I think uh, you're right. Females sort of have this sense a little bit more, uh, you know, it's like they definitely, and I think that, right, that should be all the more emphasized that, and I don't know, I'm not a therapist. I don't know how to, uh, you know, if someone comes up to me and says, I have imposter syndrome. I'm like, all I can say is, you know, don't, don't have imposter <laughs> and try to assure them. But I'm sure that there's better ways of, of, it, of it addressing that. I think as we're advancing, we, there's always that hint of, of, do I belong here? And, and yeah, I don't know, I don't know the, the best way to give advice to that sort of thing, but I think there are people who do, and you're right. I think having groups that, that help people in this regard would make a huge impact because I didn't realize this. I, you know, my wife was talking about it. Then, you know, all our female colleagues mention it 
And, and I think it's a little bit with males, but not that much. And mostly with, mostly with females, it's, and yeah, maybe there's a lot of subtle cues and there's a lot of things internally and, and it all builds up. And how do you, how do you, how do you give advice? There needs to be professionals who, who, I mean, to, I'm not to say yeah, professionals who, who know best how to, how to do this. Yeah. I think bringing in people who are trained in this is always a good idea, but I think it's also, it's also about, you know, just exposure and environment from the very first moment you join a community. So with the earliest members just starting out in this field, um, can we introduce them to the scary senior people and, and make it a low stakes environment where you really can ask all the questions you have and feel like it's okay that you are junior, you don't know a lot yet, but you are welcome in this career direction. And so linking, because I, I have to say that I find and continue to find some of the biggest names in our field uh, intimidating. And then I meet them and they're <laughs> wonderfully supportive and nothing but friendly and generous with their time. And Peter, you're included in this. Um, so so I, I, think, I think it's enabling these one-on-one -on -one interactions between the newest members and the established members so that we can really get this off on the right foot. Um, and then yes, we need to maintain this throughout all the different career jumps that we all go through. But, but I would like to see that connection the moment we walk into the door. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, ISMRM has this great thing. Uh, one of the first nights they have a, a newbie session yeah. or something like that, or like a mentors, you know, at meet the experts. And so, you know, you have some experts mm -hmm. who are high up in the field and they're just standing at a table and people come up to them and they try to be as welcoming as possible. That's one thing that could yeah. be done. Things be. like that are brilliant, I think. Yeah. And just having a, uh, you know, it's it's interesting, especially with Zoom, you could actually have sessions where, where sort of some expert just, you know, enters into something and then anyone could log in and just chat with them and talk with them and or she yeah. or he. Uh, uh, in that regard, I think you're right. That's part of that is to realize that, hey, you know, that, 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 they, they, that even people at the highest level uh, don't have everything figured out by any means. <laughs> <laughs> um, I still get intimidated, you know, honestly, I have to admit two weeks ago when I was interviewing Danny Bassett, I was like, uh, like, oh, shoot, you know, <laughs> I better know what I'm talking about. Um, and also with you as well. I mean, obviously, but you're more, your expertise are, are more, uh, close to my, my expertise, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, and, and just, and it's the awareness that some of these issues are going to maybe be more, more present in young women scientists or in anyone who doesn't feel represented across, across the discipline. So, yeah. so I like when initiatives like this are open to all, but remembering that sometimes it is helpful to say, like we're talking about today, maybe make some of these opportunities really focused for women. Um, but it is gonna benefit pretty much everybody because I think there's, there's work on mentoring and that we could do for all, all people in our community. Um, but there, there are some nuances depending on, on who you might, you, you might be trying to help. Yeah. So, so, and maybe OHBM might be the best format for that. We should talk more, obviously, after this podcast, but also, um, uh, you know, I think there's there's a, a large push to do something solid and 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 to actually have, uh, uh, you know, real meetings and real yeah. organizations in place. So. Yeah.
yeah. Um, yeah. So I absolutely would support that, and I would want to contribute. It's it's really like uh, with kids, you know, you have the big brothers and big sisters organizations, and so in academia, I feel like to be an initiate. When I was a trainee, I, I shared that feeling with a lot of other trainees that, oh, these are, uh, you know, big names, senior people, and how do we get into their network? It's very daunting. So yeah. to have someone to initiate them will probably be helpful to know that, you know, although you, for example, have a big name, but you're also um, very friendly and approachable. I didn't know that really uh, for the longest time. No. Okay. <laughs> and also, we <laughs> and we we don't want to just be a quota. Uh, we want to. I think that just reinforces that imposter syndrome. Right. I'm just here because of the quota. Yeah. That is negative. I feel like we need to, you know, be part of the conversation because we earned our spot in the at the table. I think that needs to be recognized more. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that because having quotas like that. You know, it sort of on some level fosters resentment in some people and, and then still, right, like you said, it could potentially be a vicious circle, which which fosters more imposter syndrome if you sense that they feel something weird about it. But yeah, yeah just having it naturally happen, sort of um, having, you know, more support and more focused support on, on, on specific uh, needs uh, or, or, you know, the, 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 the various life of, you know, Definitely a junior female scientist has to, and all the barriers, it's not like it's a massive barrier like it maybe it used to be, but it's sort of like there's subtle things and, and, and it, those build up and uh, that change the trajectory of people's careers. And if people have to work a little extra hard to overcome those. So how did having groups like that that support those mechanisms is I think would be really, really useful. So, all right. Well, hopefully, um, hopefully this will catalyze something that uh, that will translate to some real action in OHBM. And uh, yeah, I'll certainly, to the extent that I'm part of OHBM, I'll I'll remind them of this, and hopefully they'll listen to this podcast. All right. Uh, yeah, we've gone over time a little bit, but thanks for staying on. So, is there? Uh, yeah, any any advice or anything like that that you want to give, or any any parting thoughts with regard to this, or even the previous things that we talked about? Yeah, especially with regard to what we're talking about here. So I have one one piece of advice. I think uh, that I I thought of all the advice that I've received over the years, and this one has really stuck with me. Basically, goes something like this: just work on what you're interested in and passionate about, and don't be distracted by the chatter. Um, so, so as I was starting my lab, I was given this piece of advice because every day so many papers come out, people take different approaches and one might not want to miss anything. So we, we might be hovering between different, uh, directions. And, uh, basically this is sort of saying, be confident in your, um, ideas and pursue them. And I found that to, to stick to that piece of advice has really helped me over the years. Yeah, and, and hopefully, hopefully in a way that that is in line with what you're saying. I think what what I've found with my research and what I'm I've I've seen from my mentors and I'm trying to bring with my own trainees is there are very real practical requirements to succeed and progress in academia. So within this direction that you're genuinely interested in, I think it's good to balance the small, mundane, incremental advances 
with the big, exciting, I really hope it works. This would be hugely impact in, in, impact, uh, active, um, impactful. Uh, I, I think balancing those two types of studies, um, it, it helps, you know, you, you sort of pay the bills, everyone can eat and you can reach for some of the most exciting research that you can. Um, so I, I definitely echo Jean what you just said, which is, find a direction that engages you, like genuinely interests you. Um, and then I think it's it's the, the strategy of navigating, how can you make sure you're always progressing and occasionally able to make a great leap forward, right? So um, I, think, I think hopefully both of those things can happen. Uh, and then the methodology improves and our understanding of human physiology improves with this approach. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice. I think that, uh, and it's really good advice in terms of, you know, how to deal with the, the, the feeling that there's this onslaught of papers and people are being pulled, you know, your ideas are being pulled all over the place. And um, yeah, I think that any, I think I totally agree with both of you, just, just uh, finding something that's, that you're passionate about and thinking deeply about it. And even at that stage, even thinking deeply about it, just a little bit, you're already way ahead in that regard uh, from, from most of the field to sort of thinking about it in your own way and then trying things along that way and not be afraid to try things. So that's, those are, that's a great piece of advice. Um, yeah, it, it, the opposite way, you know, trying to triangulate between different papers and say, oh, well, they haven't done this, so maybe we'll, that's, that's sort of the opposite way uh, uh, as I think what works best, just kind of, you know, finding your questions that drive you. And that, and, yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, this is really, really fun. Yeah. We, you know, I, I had a whole bunch of other things to talk about, but uh, maybe, maybe some other time when you come back or whatever, but uh, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, happy to. yeah. All right. Well, good, good. We might have an ongoing discussion on physiologic fMRI. Maybe we'll have a big group or something and maybe another discussion uh, of maybe just a whole podcast devoted to women in neuroscience as well, uh, which I think could be useful. So but thanks again. I, I really appreciate you spending your time. And I, I think that uh, this raised the awareness of the community on a lot of things from physiologic fMRI to, to women in neuroscience. So, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. Great.